chapter 1. You say, Pastor, I only see one verse there in the notes. You're not going to make very much time if you're only going to take one verse. Well, are you in a hurry? Anybody in a hurry? I hope not. John chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verse 14 today. Now, there is a great deal, if you haven't noticed, uh, no doubt you have, but there is a great deal of false teaching uh, out there today. Hopefully it's all out there, certainly not in here. Um, But uh, there's a great deal of false teaching going on out there. And take, for instance, this quote from a man by the name of Joel Olstein. In dealing with people for several years, thousands of people, one thing I can tell you is that 99.9% of people are not bad people. They make poor choices, but deep down, they got a good heart. Well, what does Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says? There is none good, no, not one. I believe that's a false teaching when man says that. Or how about, I'm going to say to you right now, you are God's, little g. You are God's because you came from God and you are God's. Creflo Dollar. Well, that's not what my Bible says. My Bible says there is only one God. There is none before or after. Isaiah 43.10 is a good reference to counteract that false teaching. How about Joyce Meyer? I'm going to tell you something, folks. I didn't stop sinning until I finally got it through my thick head. I wasn't a sinner anymore. Well, my Bible says... If a man says he has no sin, he's a liar, deceives himself. And that goes for believers as well. We still are sinners, but sinners saved by grace. And then this fellow says, I happen to know people who are followers of Christ in other religions. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And so you could, we could go on and on with this. We could, I could give you many more examples. But how do people who seemingly call themselves Christians or they maybe began as a Christian end up so fouled up in their beliefs? Well, there are two basic reasons, I believe. First of all, they accept their basic basis of truth and knowledge as their own subjective experience rather than the propositional truth that's written in the revealed in the written word of God. And secondly, stemming from that wrong foundation, they developed a faulty view of the person of Jesus Christ. And so without an objective truth of the written word of God, we cannot develop correct views of who Jesus truly is. And at best, we'll come up with our subjective preferences, but they will not be based on the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. And I believe it's safe to say that every major cult and heresy has deviated from the biblical revelation of who Jesus Christ really is. They have erred 
either with regard to his deity or humanity or the relationship between his two natures. And it is serious to believe in the wrong Jesus. It's as serious to believe in the wrong Jesus as it is to believe in no Jesus. You know, saving faith is certainly more than believing correct statements about Jesus, but it cannot be anything less. And so in our text this morning, John gives one of the most succinct statements of the unfathomable doctrine of the incarnation. John chapter 1 verse 1 says, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 14 kind of reconnects, actually, with verse 1. The last time John used the word, uses the phrase, the word, as a title for Jesus in this gospel... And uh, it says the word was in the beginning with God, the word who was God, the word who created everything came into being. He was made flesh and dwelt among us. I think it's by far the most amazing miracle in the entire Bible. It's probably even more amazing than the resurrection and even more amazing than creation of the universe. The fact that an infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man and join himself to a human nature forever so that infinite God became one person with finite man, that will remain for eternity. That is the most profound miracle, most profound mystery in the universe. In one short, shattering expression, John unveils the great idea of the heart of Christianity, the very Word of God took flesh for your salvation, for my salvation, for all of man's salvation. And as we kind of going to be careful here, we're going to tread on holy ground as such. I especially identify with Paul's rhetorical question in Second Corinthians two sixteen, and says, "And who is sufficient for these things?" I don't know that I'm sufficient to really treat this as it should, but I'm going to by God's grace, make an attempt at it this morning. And so let's proceed reverently and ask the Holy Spirit to teach us. Father in heaven, we do pray that God the Holy Spirit will be our teacher this morning. And we pray, Lord, that you'll speak to our hearts about this great and most wonderful miracle that took place on the earth. And it's for our salvation and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, Jesus, the eternal word, was made flesh. Now, as I said here, we kind of have a connection between verse 1 with Jesus Christ. I'm going to call it a kind of a bridge here between verse 1 and actually verse 17. Verse 17 is the first time that John mentions the name Jesus Christ. And verse 14 is kind of the bridge there. It links the word with Jesus Christ. It affirms two truths about Jesus Christ that are, again, foundational to the Christian faith. And so as the eternal word, we first find that Jesus is fully God. Now we see this clearly in verse 1. 
John asserts that Jesus is eternal. He does not say, in the beginning, God created the word as the first and the greatest created being. He doesn't say that. But rather, he says, in the beginning was the word. And the sense of the verb is that he already existed at the beginning of time because he had no beginning. He is one in essence with the Father. And the triune God is the only eternal being. Now, of course, Satan hates this truth. Satan will do anything he can to undermine the deity of Christ because it spells his doom. And so he's always attacked it. And as I stated in an earlier message, that one of the most substantial attacks on the deity of Christ came from the heretic Arius in the early 4th century. He taught that the word was the first and greatest created being. And he gained a large following, and the attacks will continue on even to today on Christ's deity through the Unitarians, through liberal theologians, through modern cults like the Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons. But the New Testament clearly affirms the deity of Jesus Christ. He himself claimed to be God. John chapter 5 and verse 23, that all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. In John 8, 58, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, the Jews would have recognized that phrase, I am, as a reference to God's name as revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. In John 10, 30, he said very clearly, I and my father are one. In John 14 and verse 9, Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet thou hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And thou, how sayest thou then, show us the Father? We also find that Scripture directly states that Jesus is God. Oh, there are a number of passages of Scripture we could look at, uh, even here in John 1, 1, and then uh, John 20, 28, and oh, we could go on and on and see where uh, Scripture directly states that Jesus is God. But I think the greatest, the clearest, is Hebrews 1, 8 which applies Psalm 45 and verse 6 to Jesus. But under the sun he saith thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. And then also there are many titles that apply only to God that are also applied to Jesus. For instance, the name Lord is the same as Jehovah in the Old Testament. He is the Lord of glory, it says in 1 Corinthians 2.8. Uh, in Revelation 1.8, it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. And then just a few verses later in verse 17, Jesus proclaims, I am the first and the last. And then Revelation 22 and verse 13, in case you, he, you missed it the first time, he says it again, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And then we find Jesus displayed many incommunicable attributes of God. He is eternal, John 1.1. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. He's immutable. He's glorious. 
and he's sovereign. Those are the same attributes we give to God. They're given to Jesus. Paul put it in Colossians 2.9, For in him dwelleth all the fullness, as we read in our scripture reading this morning, For in him all dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And then Jesus did works that only God can do, such as creating all of us. That's something only God can do, but Jesus was there. He was part of the, he was our creator. Raising the dead, overpowering Satan and all spiritual forces, judging all people, forgiving sins, and receiving worship. You cannot believe the New Testament and deny the full deity of Jesus Christ. And then when the eternal work took flesh, secondly, he was made fully human. John could have said, the word was made man. Or he could have said, the word took on a human body. But no, this is important. The word flesh here kind of just jars you with bluntness. And I think John was probably confronting another heresy of docetism, which says that Jesus only appeared or seemed to be human. But John wants us to know he took upon himself our full human nature except for the sin. And from the miraculous moment when Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Virgin Mary, he would never cease to be human. He is forever both, forever both God and man in one person. Now those words there, was made, that does not mean that Jesus ceased to be what he was before. Rather, to his eternal deity, he added perfect humanity. He temporarily laid aside the use of some of his divine attributes and the full display of his glory. We read about that in Philippians chapter 2, and as well as John 17. But he shone forth on occasion, as we later will see in our study there, and he did not lay aside his deity and cease to be God. Rather, he added complete humanity to his eternal deity. And Jesus' human nature was subject to hunger. He got thirsty. He had weaknesses. He had tiredness. He had temptation and even death. But he was without sin. Again, Satan is going to try to undermine this great truth and he hates the truth that Jesus the eternal God took on human flesh because it qualifies Jesus to be our savior and so Satan will attack this doctrine the Apollinarians acknowledged Christ to be God and man but they held that Jesus did not take on the soul of a man the Logos took the place of the rational soul the Nestorians believed Christ to be both God and man, they, but they conceived of him as two persons, so dividing his unity. Eutychians held to one person in Christ, but they mixed the two natures, saying that it produced a third thing. And they said that Jesus' humanity was absorbed into his deity, and thus he only had one nature. And the era error persists today in what's called monophysitism, uh, uh, which is held by the Coptic church in Egypt and Ethiopia 
and other groups in Syria. And so Jesus Christ, and by the way, we need to be careful, I think, when we hear words like Christian on the news in the Middle East. Some of those people are really not born-again followers of Christ, but they are called Christians. Now, they may be persecuted, and I'm sure that there are some sincere, true believers, but you know some of them take on the name but are really not born again. But Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, united in one person forever, without confusion of his two natures. And it's an incomprehensible mystery about the two natures of Christ, how they interact. But you know what we need to do? We need to believe God's word. We accept the scriptures. This is the word of God. So, well, I can't fully explain it. It's kind of a, no, take God at his word. It says the word became, was made flesh. Notice, secondly, Jesus, the eternal word, word, dwelt among us. Now, John could have said the word lived among us. But instead, he used the word that's translated dwelt. The word dwelt means to pitch a tent. Something that some of you know something about. Um, Not my kind of idea for sleeping arrangements. But sometimes people pitch a tent and they live that way. But uh, this word dwelt also means to tabernacle. Oh, that makes it even a richer meaning, especially from a biblical point of view. It's used of the tabernacle of the Old Testament. Where God dwelt with his people in the wilderness. John does not mean by this term that Jesus' humanity was temporary. You know, we think about, you know, going camping. Well, a tent's a temporary place to sleep. Now, that's not what John has in mind here, but rather that his stay on earth was temporary. He did not come to earth and then stay here. Oh, he could have. But then he wouldn't have fulfilled his purpose, would he? So by using the word that is used for tabernacle, coupled with seeing Jesus' glory, John wants us to see some connections here. And just as the tabernacle was the place where God dwelt with his people and manifested his glory, so Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And just as the tabernacle was the center of the Israel's camp, so Christ is to be the center of our lives and of our church. Just as the sacrifices and worship were offered at the tabernacle, so Jesus is our complete and final sacrifice, and we have access to God through him. You see, every aspect of the tabernacle speaks of Christ. And maybe you've done a study of the tabernacle at one time in your life, or you've sat under someone who gave a full explanation of all the different uh, pieces of furniture, and it's a wonderful study. Because the bronze altar for sacrifice and the bronze laver for cleansing point to Christ. The golden lampstand points to Christ, the light who illuminates the things of God. 
The altar of incense reminds us of Christ's making intercession for us. In the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, made of wood, covered with gold, points to the two natures of Christ. On top of the Ark was the mercy seat where the blood atonement was sprinkled. Inside were the tablets of the law, pointing to Christ, the fulfillment of God's law for us. The jar of manna, pointing to Christ as our sustenance. Aaron's rod that budded pointing to Jesus as the branch who was raised from the dead and gave new life to us who were dead in our sins. Jesus, our tabernacle, dwelt among us. Can't just kind of gloss over that little phrase. It has a rich meaning to it. Thirdly, this morning, the apostles saw the glory of the word. God's glory is the sum of all his attributes and perfection. It's sometimes displayed as the bright and overpowering light. Maybe John, said, when he said, we beheld his glory, uh, was referring to the transfiguration. When he and James and Peter saw Jesus in his glory, John could not have forgotten that event. But you know what? He doesn't really tell about it in his gospel. The other gospel writers relate it to us. But how could John, who had been there, not tell us about it? Well, it wasn't his purpose, but he, I think, can be referring to that right here. We beheld his glory. But he also could be referring to Jesus' glory revealed in his miracles. But only to those who had eyes to see. You know, after Jesus turned the water into wine, John reports in chapter 2, this beginning of the miracles did Jesus in Canaan of Galilee and manifested forth his glory. And his disciples believed on him. Before Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he said in John eleven four, the sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. And the Son of God might be glorified thereby. I think that's a good thing to pray about when you are sick. Sickness doesn't isn't any fun, is it? You get a cold, you get a cough, and you go, oh, I wish I could get rid of this stuff. Maybe we should be praying, Lord, help this to be to your glory. And even after the amazing miracle of raising a Lazarus from the dead, the Jewish leaders increased their efforts to kill the one who is the resurrection and the life. But then John also shows that Jesus' glory was supremely revealed in the cross. When Judas went out of the upper room to betray the Savior, Jesus said in John 13, verse 31, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. Again, Humanly speaking, we say, Judas is leaving to betray Jesus, and Jesus' reaction is, now the Son of God is glorified. Wouldn't be our first thought, would it? The cross displays, of course, God's perfect justice, his amazing love like no other event in history. And in our text, John elaborates on Jesus' glory with two phrases. The first one is the glory of the only begotten Son. That term, only begotten, it's a part of historical creeds and so forth, but sometimes I think it causes some confusion, namely that Jesus became, came into being at a point of time. 
Some people think, you know, well, Jesus just came to being when he was born here on this earth. No, he always was and he always is. But sometimes it's said that Jesus is eternally begotten so that he's the eternal son of God. It could be said that Jesus is the one and only. It's a term that's used of the widow of Nain, uh, Nain's only son in Luke 7, of Jairus's only daughter in Luke 8, of a man's only son who was afflicted by the evil spirit in Luke 9. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 17 refers uh, to Isaac, who was not really Abraham's only son, but his unique son, the son of promise. John is the only New Testament author to use this term to speak of Jesus. He uses it several times. And he means that Jesus is the only or unique son of God in a way that no one else is. Jesus has no equal among men. He's not just another prophet. He's not just another great teacher. There's no one like him. He's a one and only. And we become sons of God through the new birth, but Jesus is the eternal son, co-equal with the Father in his essence. We do not become gods as one false teacher I referred to says that we do. Sadly, there are also many missionaries to the Muslims who are producing and endorsing translations of the New Testament that replace terms like father and son with other terms, with less offensive terms to Muslims. And they argue that Muslims wrongly think that Christians believe that Jesus is the result of God having a sexual relationship with Mary. And to remove that stumbling block, so they change the terms. But in doing so, they change the very nature of God as he was revealed in Scripture. God is the eternal Father, and Jesus is the eternal Son. The Holy Spirit is also eternal God. Three persons, but one God. And while it is humanly impossible to fully understand it, we dare not tamper with it, And make the message less offensive. This is what God's word says. So that's what we're going to say. There's another phrase here that's very important. That is the glory was full of grace and truth. Now this is probably referring back to Exodus 33 and Exodus 34 where Moses asked to see God's glory. God explains that he cannot see his face and live, but he will hide Moses in the cleft of the rock, cover him with his hand and pass by so that Moses can see his back. And then we read in Exodus chapter 34 and verse 7, and the Lord Verses 6 and 7, And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord the, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, upon the children's children, unto the third or and to the fourth generation. And in this profound experience, we hear of God's grace and truth. He is abounding with loving kindness. That is grace for many, but true to his holiness. 
and he still punishes the guilty. Jesus was full of grace and truth. His grace offers love and compassion to the guilty sinner. His truth means that he warns of God's judgment if sinners do not repent and believe in him. Grace and truth reach their culmination at the cross where the truth of God's holiness and the justice was satisfied in the death of a perfect substitute so that he now can offer grace to the guilty sinners who trust in Jesus. It's only by believing the truth as it is in Jesus that you can experience God's grace and forgiveness. And since Jesus is full of grace... You can come to him and you know he can welcome you because he is full of truth. You can trust his promises. Now, I believe there's some practical lessons that we can draw from this wonderful verse in John chapter 1, verse 14. The constant, undivided union of two perfect natures of Christ's person gives us infinite value of his mediation excuse me, for sinners to his imputed righteousness to believers, to his atoning blood, to his resurrection. Did the word become flesh? Oh, yes. He became flesh in order that he could be touched with the feeling of people's infirmities because he suffered himself being tempted. He's almighty because he's God, but yet he can sympathize with you this morning because he's a man. Did the word become flesh? Yes. Then he can apply us with a perfect pattern and example for our daily lives. Having dwelt among us as a man, we know that the true standard of holiness is to walk even as he walked. He's the perfect pattern. Because he's God. But he's also a pattern exactly suited to our needs. You can't say this more. Well, he's the perfect pattern. I'll never measure up to him. But he is suited to our needs. And we need to follow his pattern. Did he become flesh? Did the word become flesh? Then let us see our mortal bodies as real, true dignity and not defile them by sin. Vile and weak as our body may seem, it is a body which the eternal God was not ashamed to take upon himself, to take up to heaven. And that simple fact is a pledge that he will raise our bodies at the last day and glorify them together with his own. Now, listen, as I've said, this is a crucial foundational truth that is important to everyone here this morning. Jesus... The Word, the Son of God, the Creator, God Himself, came to this earth, took on Himself the human flesh, so you and I might be saved. Everyone here has a soul. Everyone here is going to live somewhere, someday. Either in heaven or in hell. You may have been attending church all your life. You may be, have been baptized. You may even become a member of the church. But none of that is going to count for eternity. 
But the Bible says the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, in order for that gift to be available to us, the God who created us, the God in whom we sinned against, sent his son to this earth. And God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If you are here today and you're trusting in your way, your own good works, your religion, your baptism, your church membership, whatever it might be, the only way to have a right relationship with God is through the one who made, was made flesh and dwelt among us, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm pleading with you this morning, if you're not saved, won't you come to him today? If you are saved, thank God for this wonderful, wonderful miracle this morning. Determine in your heart to serve him today and tell others, this good news of Jesus Christ and salvation through him. Now, I know Christmas is come and gone, but let me share just one phrase from Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Next time you sing that, think about Jesus who was made in flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Father in heaven.